Welcome, cool. Asher, to Velvet Theory. Mm. Happy to happy to have you. Yeah, um, happy to be here. So let's jump in. Let's talk about what is effective altruism. What is effective altruism? That's a, a good intro question. So effective altruism, the way that I tend to describe it to people is that it's essentially wanting, wanting to do good better. So we all have a notion of like, you know, what doing good means. Like maybe we have different sets of values or different beliefs about what are the problems in the world that we ought to solve. Effective altruism is essentially, it's not telling you, okay, like what values should you hold? Um, but it's saying, okay, like given whatever values you hold, what is the most effective way that you can go about promoting those values or having an impact on the world? And yeah, EA is, I guess, quite characterized by, you know, lots of quantification of, of impact. So um, a large part of effective altruism is kind of charity evaluation. So making sure that um, funds are actually being spent effectively on addressing the problems that the charities are, are going out to solve. Um, and yeah, something something also that I would I would say about it is I consider it more of like a I guess like a an approach to, mm -hmm. to doing good as opposed yeah. to a lot of people think that there's kind of like you know um, big EA or something like that like a kind of a center to it and yeah there is the center for effective altruism but I think that broadly it's more of just like a, an ecosystem of different nonprofits and, and different individuals who kind of like yeah share a, a general approach to to doing good in the world but. There's no one organization that makes the decisions, um, I would say. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, and how does this kind of inform your, you know, approach to philosophy? Is it is it sort of like looking at harm reduction overall and what's most effective in that in, in various aspects of life? Or, yeah, how do you, mm. how does it kind of impact your philosophical belief and, and practice, I guess? Mm. Yeah, so I guess I've been doing philosophy for nine or ten years now, and um, I grew up in, I guess, like a, an animal advocacy context, um, grew up vegan, and both of my mothers were really involved in, um, yeah, animal rights and, and stuff like that, and yeah, I guess it was kind of like around the time of being a teenager that I first encountered philosophy as a subject, and I really, really liked it, and I guess like going on to study it at a, at a university level, I became particularly interested in um, kind of animal ethics and applied ethics um, and also some kind of more abstract kind of uh, um, theoretical stuff. Um, so yeah, I guess I kind of came to effective altruism because I guess through kind of like being interested in animal advocacy and um, animal welfare is like, I guess one of the kind of core, um, core yeah, aspects of EA or core cause areas of, of effective altruism. Um, but yeah, I think like, uh, um, can you repeat the question? Sorry. Sorry. Just, how does, how does effective altruism uh, like kind of, uh, navigate or impact your, your, you know, philosophy practice, I guess, in a way. You yeah. Know, your own philosophy. Yeah. So, um, EA, I guess one of the, the people that was like quite instrumental to starting EA was Peter Singer, who's like a very notable, um, philosopher, applied ethicist. He's also done a lot of work on animal ethics. Um, he published, uh, animal liberation which is considered like one of the the core um, texts on on animal advocacy um yeah i guess i kind of came into ea just naturally as a result of being interested in these areas of, of philosophy and i first um joined up to an ea group when i was doing my master's degree in amsterdam in about 2017 and then 
yeah, I guess I've been kind of loosely uh, affiliated kind of on and off throughout the years since, um, kind of tapered off a bit during COVID just due to, you know, the craziness of the, the pandemic. But, um, yeah, coming back to the UK, um, has been, yeah, really, really good for actually being more a part of the, the community aspect of effective altruism. Previously, it was just like kind of, oh, well, you know, I already decided I wanted to dedicate my career toward promoting, you know, animal welfare. Um, so it was more ideological, but now I think it's actually like, yeah, I'm working at like a, a co-working EA space in London, for example. And, um, uh, last year I was working at the Oxford kind of co-working space and yeah, it's nice to be involved in the community aspect too. So you just mentioned that like kind of, you came from this animal, you know, animal rights, et cetera, background, and then you found EA, but that you had kind of been working towards a, a philosophy before that i guess so what was your sort of what was your sort of starting point with philosophy i guess is the question. <laughs> i'm curious like how did you begin mm. your philosophy journey <laughs> so, yeah yeah um yeah i guess like i've always been like quite a philosophical person like even when i was very young in primary school i kind of like you know that classic question of like do we all see the same color i think i i kind of came to that like totally independently like I remember thinking that one day and then just getting really tripped out and thinking like how how would I know that I see the same color as you if like you know the only way that I I can know that I see the same color is just by pointing to something but we're having kind of you know different perceptions I mean this is like a a basic kind of you know philosophical puzzle um I've kind of always tended toward yeah I guess like a that approach to, to to reasoning and um yeah I guess like when I started studying philosophy, um, for my undergraduate degree, I kind of developed this, um, I guess like I didn't really have it formalized, but this, this loose kind of like idea that like fundamentally, like we're all kind of just subjects of experience or, you know, we all have, uh, an experience and a core part of, of having an experience is, you know, uh, having positive and negative experiences. Um, and I kind of, I guess, yeah, suffering reduction, um, I guess kind of maybe followed from, from taking that approach mm-hmm. um okay yeah i'm not sure if that's a <laughs> yeah yeah no a um response, but yeah does because i think once you mentioned to me that you're more interested in sort of i think you once said that you're more interested in someone who has like sort of a an intense theory or or sort of set of beliefs that they they believe in that you know like a, a worldview essentially like a, a synthesis of a worldview that's sort of more definite as opposed to just being sort of mm. un- undefined in a sense. Oh, like, like agnosticism. Yeah. So this is, yeah, this is yeah. something is that, that part of it. Yeah. I'm curious about that also. That I, I guess, like... yeah, this is kind of like, I mean, this is just generally, um, as I said, I'm, I tend toward philosophical thinking and philosophers like, uh, famously or, or infamously have like, you know, you'll never find, um, two philosophers with the exact same kind of background assumptions. You yeah. know, there's, um, this crazy diversity and different beliefs that different philosophers hold and, and how philosophers approach forming beliefs. Um, this is something that I think when we were talking about that, um, yeah, outside of the podcast, um, I was just thinking more so in the context of effective altruism or just generally like doing good research. I think it's good to basically assume a premise or assume an axiom, even if it seems like really yeah. crazy yeah. and then just run with it. Like I think, pragmatically like even if that you know premise is like probably wrong you're just doing um maybe like much higher quality work or or having a lot of people kind of taking that approach to to doing research 
um, is just generally going to be more productive than having everyone try and be agnostic and having everyone try and factor their their background assumptions by whatever kind of probabilities they come to. Yeah. And this is, yeah, something that I think, like, EA is kind of like... I mean, I think, in a sense, it's kind of rational to, to be agnostic about a lot of these things, but I think it's also, like, very fruitful to sometimes just, like, take an assumption and run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm thinking about potentially um, writing a forum post sometime in the near future about this, this idea. Yeah. Because yeah. you were saying also to me that maybe... You know, because there's all this stuff obviously now about, I mean, speaking of animal rights, but also speciesism and then climate change. And it's like, but you were saying to me that there's essentially no ceiling to to the morality of humanity or not. Essentially, like, I think, mm. do you think that, but basically my question is, is there good and evil? Is the universe <laughs> different? Okay. <laughs> a very I'll, straightforward question. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah. like, I guess this touches on like a, some very fundamental kind of like, you know approaches or worldviews to, to to doing ethical reasoning where it's like i mean there's there's this one kind of paradigm where there are good people and bad people yeah, and right. you know the point of ethics is to kind of like promote good and and uh, eliminate bad or, or whatever i tend to take the approach of just thinking that there is like you know there's there's consciousness and then there are physical processes that are like very successful sometimes at replicating themselves mm-hmm. and are indifferent to the intrinsic value of consciousness so as I mentioned before, like I tend to think that individuals fundamentally are just subjects of experience and you know, you can have like intrinsically positive or intrinsically negative experiences like uh, extreme torture, for example, or, um, or whatever else. Is there a moral implication to pain and suffering? Is it, is it always sort of like pain is always bad? Because like, I mean, just a, a dumb example, just to, yeah. for the purpose of conversation would be obviously like childbirth is supposed to be one of the most, it's supposed to be the most painful thing like a human can experience or whatever, right? Theoretically. Yeah. But like, obviously yeah. it's also <laughs> like the most beautiful thing, blah, 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 that kind of thing. So like, how do you th- kind of consider, you know, or like, do you create a hierarchy of pain to reward thresholds in that sense or is there anything yeah. like that or is it much more sort of am i going off the trail yeah <laughs> so i think i think childbirth is an interesting example because yeah on the one hand it is considered like extremely painful but on the other hand like um a lot of survey research has shown that when people rate the best experiences of their life like having a child like childbirth is among the top experiences right yeah. and I've, I've actually always said something that like maybe uh you know not not everyone would agree with or it might piss some people off but like i would love to just have the experience of giving birth to a child um obviously there's a lot of pain that comes with it but i think it is like it is just very cool in the in the sense of like you know people tend to forget humans are animals and this is just like one of the the core you know kind of like functions that we've evolved as animals is to is to reproduce and to have offspring and in terms of like yeah essentially the psychological effect of of I guess performing that function I think it's like yeah there, there's there's a lot of suffering involved in it but I think there's also like a tremendous amount of like yeah um utility like uh, mm-hmm. you feel this deep uh sense of connection with 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 your child and it's like very momentous you know it kind of like maybe changes how you perceive yourself you know it's just this super formative um kind of experience you know suddenly you're not just a an adult you're maybe like a mother or a father or something um and so in that sense, I think, like, taking the experience as a whole, I think it can be, like, extremely positive. I think you can have, like, you know, you don't just have experiences that are positive or negative. You have experiences yeah. that are mixed. And when I say that, 
you know, essentially like I'm, I care about reducing suffering. I'm not talking about, you know, eliminating kind of the negative aspects of every experience, especially like, you know, very, you know, biological human experiences. I'm more so just talking about, okay, like if we have say like a being who is just like being tortured continuously or has a disease or an illness that is easily treatable and the suffering that they're experiencing, uh, the suffering that they're experiencing has no function. You know, it doesn't motivate them to, to do something to change their behavior that, that might increase their survival. I think that's just like, it's very difficult to argue that this is like, you know, um, permissible or, or a good thing. Um, I think, yeah, like we have pretty strong reasons to want to reduce that suffering. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I always come back to this idea of like, I mean, I guess the current just general global system of capitalism thinks a lot about, you know, it's this word I always go back to. I'm very obsessed with like externalities, you know, because mm. everything becomes like an externality at a certain point in the pursuit of, of some other thing. And so it's like this idea of externality as in it's someone else's problem. Right. So like, with, yeah. like whether it's like the meat industry and it's like the animals pain and everything consuming meat or these kind of things, like it becomes mm. this other, it becomes a very metaphysical externality in a way too, of like a way of, it's like a philosophical externality. Like we're, we're living in a way where, all of the pain and stuff that we don't see or experience immediately is kind of like able to be put aside. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, but it's very yeah. difficult. But then again, it's also, I think also we live in this area where there's so much media and there's so much, you know, there's so many videos showing, you know, whatever animal stuff or, or people are rioting and getting killed by cops or whatever it is, you know, yeah. you're, you're flooded with all these, these things that are happening that are bad in the world that it's also, we, I think our, our meter of like empathy has to go down a bit because we can't mm. always, especially like, I mean, you were talking about COVID before. It's like during the COVID years, like there was so much happening that you kind of had to just take care of yourself and be careful because you're like, mm. you just, your, 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 your circle of empathy couldn't be that endless in a way. Well, so I also yeah. think, and then like, this can go, kind of go into like, the, you know, discussion about speciesism because it's like, I think already humanity is in so much pain and suffering. We have so many things we have to deal with that I think people don't even like, begin to consider animals i feel like because they're like oh you know they're cute whatever i've got my dog and then like yeah i eat pigs or whatever i eat cow but like they don't there's again there's that there's that level of separation Mm. and then from everything to like and and, i mean that that's in every aspect of life too where you know the piece of meat is this geometric form essentially on the plate and it's so divorced from the original thing it's like you know so that i think it's much more easy to, to swallow or, or not think about. It's kind of like this, yeah, this, this separation layer. Yeah, um, so yeah. I, I, I think in response to what you were saying about the whole COVID thing, like, as I said before, humans are animals and, like, we evolved under particular conditions that are, like, no longer present. We just, we're not adapted to be able to think about, like, the amount of, like, uh, suffering and, and maybe, like, you know, pain that exists on, on a global scale, especially, like, when, when COVID was happening and... And then just constantly being bombarded with, you know, um, you know, horrible, uh, you know, stories in, in, in the news and whatnot. I think, like, it's good to maybe, like, reduce kind of, like, um, you know, not to try and feel too much or, like, to, to have a strong empathy response just because this is clearly, like, um, taking, you know, the, the empathy response did not evolve in the context of having access to, like, um, yeah. mass amounts of information, right? Right, right, right. And so, yeah, I think this is something that, like, I... I feel like somewhat strongly about, like, I think a lot of people reason about ethics and morality based on how they feel in response to apprehending something. For me, it's like very, very disconnected from my emotional response um, to, to things that I research. For example, something that I research is like suffering risks, risks of like um, suffering on the scale of like, you know, um, like of, of planets, say, or entire ecosystems. Um, 
if I felt an empathy response when I'm researching this kind of stuff, I don't think I would be living a very good life and I don't think I'd be working very productively. And moreover, I think empathy or, or like your emotions um, change over time, right? And so in the, say, as I said, I've been involved in animal advocacy for a very long time and it's very common for people to kind of see, you know, slaughterhouse footage and have an empathy response and suddenly um, think, oh, wow, these, you know, these animals can feel pain too. I'm going to change my behavior. And then they become like very, you know, kind of dogmatic, hardcore vegans. And like, maybe like not universally, but like it's, I, I find it's quite common if you, you go into say animal advocacy because you have these strong emotions to get burned out because it's just like, mm, it's yeah. too much stress. And then eventually maybe like, you know, you, it's just easier to kind of block it out. And then you don't maybe have as strong of a reason to, to act mm. in a certain way. Whereas if you kind of like come to animal advocacy or veganism as a result of say non-speciesism, as a result of like thinking about an abstract principle and then applying it consistently throughout your life, then I think that's actually just like a much stronger basis for, yeah. <laughs> for, for a sustainable yeah. thing. Thinking about like more ancient humans or human civilization, then what do you think was the function of empathy, right? And like, do you think that more ancient civilizations maybe... I mean, presumably being closer to nature, they would have a higher level of empathy or less boundaries between animal and human existence, per se, because, I mean, at least, I, I don't know, maybe this mm. goes into, like, maybe that's just, like, a dumb modern <laughs> thing I'm saying. But, like, theoretically, just being closer to nature, you'd have a bit less of a distinction. Although, I guess the whole, yeah, mm. I guess, the, I don't know, I guess the whole modern project is, in a way, to be, like, we are not, you know, we are separate from nature. We are the kind of, you know the the top the top of the pyramid of like species right in yeah, a way. yeah that's the yeah. whole modern project is to get away from the mud and to kind of get away from the animals and to be in these you know skyscrapers and whatever and financial empires but it's like mm. but yeah do you think that at a different time maybe like like what do you think is the utility then of empathy actually so humans and like generally you know a lot of a lot of social animals especially mammals um you know the way that we, I guess, the, the the conditions under which we evolved were in very small groups where having, like, a strong empathy response and having that be, like, the motivation for behaving in a particular way, that just, like, worked because, you know, you, you didn't have to consider, you know, like, maybe the welfare of, uh, you know, um, a population that's on the other side of the world from you. You don't even have yeah. a concept of yeah. what that means, you know. Exactly. Um, and, yeah, and I think that the way that, like, this also just like generally ex extends to i guess like human reasoning like the way that we often reason about things and and the responses that we that that we have on an emotional level as i think like a lot of that can be chalked down to um yeah like how what is adaptive in these kinds of like evolutionary conditions say in the pleistocene um where there were just like very small groups of humans i think that like the way that like we've evolved to reason is very much in terms of like, okay, who is a member of my in-group and who is a member of my out-group? A member of your in-group is essentially like, uh, you should feel the response and you should be able to like see the world from their perspective and promote their welfare because it promotes your inclusive fitness. You share a broad set of genes and their survival will benefit your survival, but a member of the out-group, and I think this is what happens with, um, with speciesism uh, in particular, I would kind of like push back against the idea that like, you know, live, I guess, like, in, a, in the Pleistocene, you know, being a part of nature, humans would have more empathy for, for other creatures or other beings. I think it's kind of the opposite. I think the reason that, like, we don't see animals mm. as having feelings and, and beings of their own 
is because they look very different from us and then like because of, of this evolutionary trajectory that our species has taken and many many other species we just think oh no this is an outgroup you know this is like we don't have to consider them um yeah, yeah. that's we a don't good point too because response. also i mean yeah. now we're, we're like humans more or less now are out of the food chain so i feel like yeah mm. probably in in other other eras of, of history or prehistory it's like Actually, we'd be probably more hostile towards animals and not care about their suffering because we're just, yeah, they're, we're at their mercy still, you mm. know, way more. As I mean, we build shelter back then, but still there's like that thing of like, actually, we could be their prey, essentially, much more. Yeah. As opposed to now, it's unlikely unless you're walking out and you get mauled by a bear or whatever, you know, you go, go on the yeah. safari and you get, you know, you're, you're an idiot and you go away from the yeah i mean like... there are different ways in which you can kind of like analyze i guess this this phenomenon um i think also another aspect of non-speciesism and i should maybe just give a brief um description of what it is uh, if the listeners haven't heard of it um so oscar Horter defines it as the unjustified um discrimination of like another being just based on like a, a yeah, their phylogenetic classification based on um, what species we say that they belong to. Um, I, I want to emphasize what species we, we classify them as. There is actually no objective fact about like whether or not a being is a member of a particular species. These are just like very soft boundaries that we as humans create essentially, you know, to, right. to be able to describe these, these different beings. Um, but actually, there's no, there's, you know, species aren't a natural kind. This isn't like an objective uh, classification in nature. And in philosophy of biology, there's there's a lot of um, discussion about actually what is a species. And there are, yeah, there's, there's no like really clear cut definition of a species. Um, but yeah, just getting back to um, another implication that I think is often not super recognized. It's not just about like how we reason about ethics, but it's also about like, our epistemology like what beliefs we hold about like different beings so if you look at like the history of kind of like um uh, i don't know like animal science or animal research there's just like these massive periods where essentially it was just crazy to talk about animals as being able to feel pain or having experiences like this kind of started with with descartes he kind of um i think there are stories of him like dissecting um his uh, his his pet dog because he believed that it was just an autonomous uh, or <laughs> or whatever. Oh god. Um. Yeah. He 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 thought you know only humans really have feelings and 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 various yeah. philosophers throughout history or or, or or scientists have tried to kind of like promote this idea that like either we can't know anything about the subjective experiences of, of non humans or they just don't have experiences at all and humans have like whatever you call it the soul or there's something innate about um being a human that means that we're subjects of experience i think this is just like totally crazy but it's like it's an insidious manifestation of kind of non-speciesism because it's like it's it's not like these claims have direct kind of like you know ethical implications but if you're kind of like denying another individual's like capacity to have experiences to begin with i think it's just like yeah, um, I, I I think it is just like a a, a bias um, that yeah, it's just, it's just a really bad reasoning. Uh, yeah, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, of course. But I mean, I guess I guess it's one of those things again where it it just it's like the othering of yeah, racism or sexism or any yeah. any of these isms really that are like putting it it kind of removes the for lack of a better word, humanity of another thing, I guess, you know? Yeah. Um, the, uh, or the, intrin- the, the intrinsic of, value. Of yeah, the value. Being. Well, the value, yeah. the, the, the care, the empathy for that 
yeah, yeah. Um, other that others experience and and and, and you know phenomenon. Yeah, um, for sure. What is your definition or theory of consciousness? Because I guess I guess part of it is <laughs> yeah. huge. I mean, it's a huge, <laughs> huge thing. But maybe part of this is also like the the inability. I don't know. I guess it goes it goes around the, this idea of did humans in previous in past times kind of uh, understand that animals were conscious or recognize that there's a similar kind of consciousness hum- consciousness of hu- as humans or you know these kind of things right i think all mm. these issues are bound up together probably but yeah, yeah. do you have uh, you know as a philosopher very interested in consciousness what is do you have like kind of a overarching theory of consciousness or yeah what yeah it? yeah so i think basically i because i'm doing a lot of animal ethics um i'm not directly you know doing consciousness research i'm very interested in consciousness research and obviously it feeds into a lot of these these um these ethical questions um, and welfare-based questions that I'm concerned with. Um, just maybe briefly before I go into it, I should just define what I mean by consciousness. So I would I would define consciousness as like awareness, essentially, They're, like as experience. Uh, there being something that it's like to experience a particular phenomenon. And uh, when I use the term sentience, I'm described or I'm using it to describe essentially there being a subject of experience. Um, when I, when I say that a subject of experience, but also yeah, a subject of experience. And importantly, I would say that like for a being to be sentient, there are like um, objective boundaries to the field of their experience, essentially. Um, yeah, so what is consciousness? I broadly, I guess um, my personal views is that I'm, I'm a physicalist. I think that like um, uh, reality um, or, or physics is ultimately reducible to, to moments of experience. Um, I guess in that sense, I'm kind of like a, a panpsychist. I think that like intrinsic to, to, you know, the unit, everything is ultimately like reducible to, to experience or to mm-hmm. qualia, you know, innate yeah. properties of experience. But yeah, uh, I think there's a really important distinction between when you have sentient beings versus when you just have like objects. So say this, this water bottle that I'm holding, I don't think like, I think that the fields of physics that make up this water bottle probably have some sort of like consciousness quality or qualia value right but i don't think that this water bottle has a perspective um and this kind of goes into what i was saying before about like sentience being defined as like having a field of experience that has like objective boundaries um i think that sentience evolved at a certain stage in evolutionary history where you have essentially if you look at the um the evolution of life you know you have these different stages um i think that there was a certain point where it just became really adaptive to be able to create this little kind of closed bubble of experience um, that would like model the world explicitly using, I guess, qualia. Um, and I think that probably occurred sometime like uh, like just over 500 million years ago during the Cambrian explosion. I mean, this is like a, an open question and it's something that I'm investigating in my, in my PhD yeah. thesis. So that's sort of when you think, when you, when you track a, in a physical sense, at least like maybe where consciousness on earth began essentially this yeah yeah so okay yeah and i think this is kind of relevant like to ethics in the sense that like you know when i say that like physics deflates or or can be ultimately reduced to to consciousness i don't want to i don't want there to be an implication of saying this that like oh you know 
what if like yeah i can hurt this water bottle what if i can cause suffering well actually you know i i think you actually need to have this kind of closed bubble of uh of experience that evolution recruited um you know with 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 organisms such as ourselves and such as many other organisms that are sentient i think i think you need you know to have like a little bubble of experience in order for there to be suffering and a yeah maybe like a, a useful way to kind of um encapsulate this idea is like the map is not the territory you know like we yeah, have yeah. we have a model of the world it's like a map but you know ultimately it's just a model it's not the world as it is and i think when we're talking about things as they are i do think that like moments of experience exist regardless of your conceptual frame of reference when you're when you're thinking about or reasoning about the value of them and as soon as you kind of like remove that factor of, of being a human and looking at like certain, you know, valent states of consciousness and, and maybe like the instrumental value that, that these states hold, if you just look at the intrinsic value of them, then I think that like, which is what, you know, most animals really only have access to, then, um, then I think we should like reason a, about their value, you know, on that basis. I'm not trying to say that like, don't go out and get tattoos. Like I have tattoos, you know, like don't go out and do things that are going to, um, you know, cause some harm or some suffering. But I'm just saying when you are thinking about like the intrinsic value of like valent states of consciousness, just reflect upon like how much of that value is instrumental just due to the fact that you're a human with a worldview or, or a model and you're creating like actively creating a narrative through which you kind of make sense of the world versus how much of that is like intrinsic to to the state itself independent yeah. of this kind of world model i think there is some weird correlation in our in our consciousness from between pain and kind of meaning you know like yeah. sacrificing but it's like all for a, there is like a higher purpose always that we're trying to seek out it's not just like pain for pain's sake because then it's just stupid well, in a way there's some higher thing where we're trying to go past the pain yeah. to get i guess right yeah and so. you, you look at like yeah especially like russian philosophy you know like there's this real core you know kind of focus on suffering and meaning and yeah and yeah and like i i kind of i'm not dismissing that but i think that this is just like this is just an implementation level consideration this is how consciousness is being represented within our minds as animals that have evolved in a particular way. Yeah. But actually, you look at, like, other ways in which people experience meaning, there's this common example that is, is often brought up in, in, like, yeah, certain EA circles or, or, or other kind of um, philosophies that I, I'm interested in, um, of this, this, I think, Scottish woman called Jo Cameron, and she was born with this mutation on the, I think, SCN9A um, gene. Um, so she had this, like, you know, we all have, like, obviously a, a different... Um, genome um and just due to like how uh, genetic variation works which is kind of core to evolution we're all going to like be born with you know kind of different parameters through which we kind of like represent the world and experience the world this particular mutation that this woman joe cameron had um essentially meant that she didn't feel pain or she didn't suffer she's a very like high hedonic set point but importantly she could still process the signal of pain so right. th what i was saying before you know is obviously like pain is just being able to feel pain is really adaptive if you can't feel pain and, and you look at like people who are born with pain and sensitivity conditions they don't live for very long because yeah. you do something that is, is physically harming you and you just keep doing it you don't right. have like a motivation to stop doing it the relevant thing about joe cameron is that she could still process the signal of pain but it wasn't represented as unpleasant within her experience. So she, for example, described childbirth as a, a tickle, um, <laughs> which is which is crazy, right? Yeah. And the reason that like we know about this and the reason that her genome has been sequenced is 
Um, I think she was going in to see her doctors to, to get a surgery in her thumb and she was going to be given anesthetic and then she was like, oh no, I don't feel pain. She, she wanted to have the surgery done, you know, without any anesthetic because she wouldn't feel it because the, that kind of negative signal, even though she, she could recognize that it was like a, you know, a signal for harm, it wasn't represented as like an intrinsically aversive state of consciousness within her experience. Um, so basically like, I think she's kind of like a really good example of, 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 and you know, someone else where she has a really meaningful life. I think she had like lots of children. She was a school teacher. She was like a really valued member of her community, lived a really, really happy life, had a lot of meaning in her life, but she, she didn't feel this kind of suffering that a lot of like other mm-hmm. philosophers yeah. might say, Oh no, this is essential to, to, to human experience. So she still had a meaningful life. She still had a meaningful yeah. life. She just didn't, you know, she, she just didn't, didn't have like pain, any, yeah. yeah didn't feel pain. The, <laughs> that sounds like the best of both worlds. Wow. Where you're yeah, adapted to, to, yeah. to acknowledge it. Yeah. But then, so that brings me to like, to my next question about consciousness then, because then, so within her consciousness, right. The, the asset or whatever you want to call it, the aspect of pain the negative, at least stimuli of pain dropped away, but the rest of her consciousness was obviously intact. So let's say we well, take she, that. She's still a subject of experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like, let's take that in the other direction. Right. And this goes into, you know, like whatever, like uh, religious, maybe meditative experiences, uh, transcendent mm. experiences also where it's in the other direction where you're actually adding more and more stimuli where, you know, you're, you're one with nature, you're in the, you're in the garden and you feel that you're mm. with the trees and all these kind of things. Right. So I guess this brings me back to the, to the question of, if these kind of different, you know, bullet points of, of stimulus that make up consciousness can be either removed or added, then, you know, where are the boundaries of consciousness in that sense? What do you believe is, are the boundaries of consciousness yeah. or how, how much can we, how much can we actually investigate this scientifically? I suppose also, I mean, yeah. So, okay. So when people were having these like oneness experiences, I think it's like, like on on a ph- phenomenal or phenomenological level and by phenomenological i mean like essentially looking at like like self-reported like what are the qualities of their experience when they're having that experience right on that level yeah they're having the perception of oneness and and like this deep sense of synchrony with nature or with their surrounding environment but that doesn't mean that like their experience is kind of collapsing and they're actually like you know, like directly experiencing um, the world and having total synchrony with the world. It just means that the bubble of their experience, the field of their experience is like the information content that it's representing becomes like massively reduced. And maybe like there's this kind of like shutting down of almost like uh, these. Wait, it becomes reduced. How does it become reduced? Doesn't it become expanded? I guess if you're, if you are like, let's, let's just say if you're, I don't know, just take a stupid example, but like, let's say you're schizophrenic or something, right? Mm. And you're here, you're just getting all this input, even though it's not there, right? You're experiencing, I mean, this is obviously a very negative case, let's just say, but you're experiencing hallucinations, right? Ah, uh, yeah. Is it not a surplus in your consciousness, which is, I mean, it's negatively impairing your life, but like, would it not be defined as a surplus of consciousness, I guess? Well, I mean, in that case, yes. Um, I guess I was kind of focusing on the example you gave of just like um, oneness type meditation experiences. I think if you reflect on like, you know, maybe if any of the listeners have have experienced kind of like being in a deeply meditative state, um, which, you know, I would highly recommend. I think you can learn a lot about what experience is by kind of exploring these states. Um uh, then you'll notice that actually like, say my experience here sitting with you, you know, I'm having like, I have lots of different kind of like sensory modalities being represented with my experience. I have like the, the, the physical sensation of having like the weight of my body pressed against the chair. Um, I'm hearing your voice. I'm seeing you, you know, I'm kind of like feeling the temperature of the room. Um, 
you know, like there's lot, there's actually a lot of information that's currently being processed, and all of that, all of those sensory streams of information are kind of coming together uh, and being fed into the same like unified experience. But when, like, if I sit down and meditate for like two hours, like eventually, um, for me, it occurs around about maybe like the twenty-five minute mark. Eventually, I'll just get into the state where I'm not having any thoughts. I'm not like it's almost like all of these different like uh, channels of information just suddenly like become cut off or my experience is just like has yeah is, is, is not representing very much at all it's just uh, there's high levels of synchrony um and, and symmetry within you know my experience and i think actually that like directly corresponds to like how good it feels i think this is why like but is that not like yeah. an expansion you're saying it kind of cuts off thoughts but like is that not technically an expansion of your consciousness to be kind of yeah, do you not see that as an expansion? Like, I guess what I'm trying to get at also yeah. is just sort of um, this thing of, you know, the, the issue, I guess, with, with thinking about consciousness. I mean, it's very fascinating, but it's difficult to really pin down because it's like, mm. yeah, if you don't tell someone you're in pain or if you don't write in your journal every day or whatever, like what what's going on in your consciousness, does it just kind of evaporate when you die? Where does it go? Where was our consciousness before we were born, you know? Mm-hmm. And then that, that takes you into, like, the... If, if it's, like, a bounded, loop, closed-loop experience of consciousness within the body, within the sentient body, whether it's human or animal, like, where does it... Is there not, like, some some physical location where all of it comes from? <laughs> I guess, also? <laughs> yeah, so... I, I guess that's kind of, like, a difficult question to, to answer, but maybe... Maybe if I just like briefly, like another kind of maybe background concept that, that might be useful to clarify some of this discussion is just like, um, what's going on when we experience the world to begin with? Like there's this kind of naive mm. view called yeah. like direct realism where it's like we're experiencing the world. And maybe in that sense, when you say like, you know, talking about uh, expansions of consciousness, maybe if you're having like this, this deep uh, meditative experience and it feels like this kind of boundary between self and other kind of dissolves in a sense, yeah, like, maybe that's an expansion, right? Um, but I think it's it's useful to kind of, like, just, I guess, hold the view that, like, when we're experiencing the world, we're not experiencing, experiencing things directly as they are. What we're experiencing is, like, a, a representation uh, of, of something objective, of some information within the universe. Um, but the way in which it's represented is, like, it's indirect. It, it depends upon, like, our preconceptions. It depends upon how our nervous system feeds uh, that information through. We're basically seeing the world, like, you know, we're only really perceiving the world through this kind of, like, closed bubble, which explains why, you know, we both have different experiences. Um, or, again, if, like, the example of the woman who can't feel pain, right? If, like, yeah. we put our hand on the stove, we're going to feel it and be in pain, and she will have the you know, not, you know, she'll have the sense to be like, okay, I don't want to do that, but she won't actually yeah. feel the pain that we do. Right. Which is a very kind of, that, that's a good, really good example. Cause it's like a very objective way of doing it. But yeah. I guess it's, it's the kind of thing of like, I guess it goes back into this thing we we're talking about with speciesism too, of like, mm. can there be a consciousness without kind of this aspect of othering in terms of like, right. We have this physical body, which is, we sense, is separate from the rest of the, you know, the world out there. Yeah. And so we interact with the world, we experience pleasure, we experience pain, hot, cold, the smells, taste, all these things. But without the the difference, I guess, thinking about, like, difference as, as a kind mm. of mode of experiencing consciousness, like... Mm. I, don't know, I don't have a question, but... <laughs> no, no, that's all right. I think, yeah, it's, in a sense, maybe, like, your sense of self or your kind of, like, your sense of identity as as an individual in the world 
you know, maybe these things like, you know, your sense of self might expand. But I think actually just like on, on a physical level, given like certain assumptions that I'm making, you know, I think like consciousness is intrinsically physical. And, and I think that like we're experiencing the world through this kind of like this topological segment or like a local, a local field, you know, kind of uh, that is actually, uh, I guess, like se- separated from, from, from the rest of the universe. Yeah. Um, in terms of like actually the size or the, sh- the shape of that field, I don't think that actually necessarily expands and contracts. I just think that the information that's being represented within our experience can change. And then maybe like Mm -hmm. on a semantic level, like when we're talking about uh, our identities or ourselves, maybe we can have a sense that like, yeah, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a bit less of a center, you know, maybe like my sense of self expands and I start like, uh, you know, like having a less of an ego. I don't know. But does that like, does, does all of this research lead you to think that there is some kind of, you know, this notion of like collective consciousness does this kind of or is that just sort of like the because there must be some totality of consciousness right if there's some totality of, of evolution on earth which you know made us basically evolve from animals and you know evolve from from primates and whatever into human consciousness into human bodies etc and all mm. these traits like we, we we gain or we lose certain traits over time does consciousness not have a similar trajectory and thus must be kind of considered as this like ongoing spectrum? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's almost like very difficult to kind of like really clarify what is the question that we're, we're answering here. Cause, because <laughs> yeah, as I said yeah, before, yeah, sure, it's like sure, consciousness sure. is just like such a nebulous term. Um, well, I guess then, let's, we can, we can go, we can go then into, you know, we can talk about then like, because you you were you were telling me the other day that you're you're more into it's monism right basically this idea yeah, that, yeah. that things are actually it's not a, there's no duality that's actually there's just a singularity a yeah. sense is that is that sort of a good explanation of, of your philosophy of consciousness or? yeah so I think I think like as I said before I think only one substance uh, exists uh, fundamentally and I guess like I hold this belief like I I won't go into massive detail about it but I will just say that we only like we only experience the world through this kind of like uh, bubble um, through this uh, of experience through this representation. We never come to knowledge outside of being a conscious subject, apprehending uh, that knowledge. And I guess I'm inclined to think that like, you know, like essentially this is the only thing that we have, like maybe there, there is like a, a duality of substances that fundamentally exist, but we could like in principle, never actually access that information or we could access is just like this, this representation of this thing, this other substance that fundamentally exists. And so I guess I'm a, I'm a monist in the sense that I think that like, it doesn't make sense to talk about beliefs or, 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 or knowledge about, you know, things maybe on this, on this kind of like deep metaphysical level outside of just like, this this thing that intrinsically is which is that yeah like we only ever experience uh you know uh, or, or come to any beliefs or, or knowledge through it being represented within our experiences is it but when you say let me just go back like yeah you say everything is one substance basically yeah so when i'm talking about consciousness i'm talking about it as this kind of like this substrate almost like similar to how, like when we're talking about like physical systems, we assume that these systems have a physical substrate. Um, say I'm talking about like my computer, I could talk about like what functions it's performing, you know, like the input output mappings of, of the computer. I could talk about the algorithms that it's instantiating and those algorithms are sets of rules that determine what functions the computer performs. Or I could talk about it at maybe like the, the deepest level, the level of its physical realization. What is the substrate that it is actually 
using to to maybe like perform these algorithms and in this in the case of computers we typically say silicon right um and then maybe like if you want to kind of go onto a, like a very fundamental level of physics we could say okay what is what is silicon you know like what what what, what are molecules atoms subatomic particles you know is there anything that like fundamentally exists at this kind of bottom level of analysis i this isn't my field of of, of expertise but i am just inclined to think that like actually um you know in in physics uh, if we look at like if we try and break down subatomic particles and, and try and find their their intrinsic or fundamental components what we find is, is fields we find like probability distributions that like reify uh, upon observation and uh, you know in in, in in different states but there's no like there are no kind of like atoms or intrinsic kind of atomic uh i guess like uh you know particles or or you know nodes or whatever um I think there are just like fields and I think it makes it makes sense to talk about like actually the phenomenal properties of, of consciousness as it's represented within I guess the experiences of sentient beings as behaving you know in, in field field type ways um yeah this is probably going to sound yeah. like really confusing but <laughs> no but I mean I guess yeah. it's like just the whole thing of the universe kind of repackaging itself into different things but it is all just one thing that comes from comes yeah eternity but I guess I guess what I'm trying to differentiate here is like, I mean, as a painter, I think about this in very kind of dumb terms of like background and foreground of like the duality of, of making a painting where it's like, I'm applying paint to a support. Right. So you yeah. Have the kind of, and then within that image, I'm, you know, producing that, which is kind of the hero or whatever, or the foreground and then the background, like let's just say a traditional painting, but how essentially together there is sort of this weird, you know, coag- coagulation or transmutation that happens, I think, where it mm. becomes the one thing. And that's like the specialness of pain or of art or of, you know, of sound right now. I know words are coming out of my mouth and I produce them from within and they reverberate in this room and then you hear them. And it's sort of like this without, or like your computer. Yeah, it's a silicone, but then what does a silicone do within the, the space of the world, I guess? So it's like, you need the duality to produce this kind of singularity, I guess. Um, yeah. I don't know I'm going with this, but, but <laughs> I guess like then... The, then if that's what you think also, I, I like, I would wonder what you think about like artificial intelligence. If you think consciousness can be, you know, pretty, if consciousness can be kind of synthesized or fabricated well, or stored, you know, con- consci- outside yeah. of the body, I guess. So, right. Like, so w- what I'm claiming, I guess, is that consciousness or awareness is like the substrate to existence. I think that like everything that exists at like the bottom level of analysis or like the basement level of analysis, mm-hmm. I think ultimately is reducible into, into yeah, qualia into, okay. um, I guess irreducible properties of awareness or experience. Um, as I was saying before at the start and I basically, yeah, when we talk about like, say, say computers, um, and we talk about like the physical substrate being silicon, maybe what I was trying to get to before is that actually like, there there really there is no such thing as silicon right there's like we can break down what silicon is into into these smaller and smaller components and i there's this kind of like this thing that that we do when we when we're looking at things and when we're we're reasoning about things is that we assume that things like emerge at a certain level of complexity um and there's this philosophical notion of strong emergence which is when like a given entity or a given phenomenon basically cannot be explained in terms of its more kind of fundamental components. Like it's something new occurs at the macro level of analysis that cannot be accounted for at the micro level of analysis. Mm -hmm. I, the way that I approach ontology, like the study of existence is I'm just like, I don't really think there is strong emergence. I think there's this kind of weak emergence. There's a sense in which like, say um, these 
<laughs> you know, fields of uh, with probability distributions. There's a sense in which, yeah, they reify into silicon atoms, and then those uh, come together to form lattices, and then you have like these these kinds of structures that you know you, you kind of go more and more macro, and then and then you have a computing system. But I think that ultimately, like like yeah, at, at a metaphysical kind of level, the, the substance of the silicon atoms' existence is actually just like uh, awareness or experience. But I guess, like, so, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this, into this rabbit hole, but, yeah. but the, the last thing with it is, is sort of, like, then if, 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 if there is no, let's just say there's no consciousness to experience qualia in the universe, right? What, what, what does is, the universe still exist, basically? It's the thing of, like, if the, the, the tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it actually make a sound? Like, when you say probably this, yeah. it does, right? Or, or the sound, in that case, does the sound itself become the consciousness? Is it the tree's consciousness? Like, so, I guess it's sort of... But again, mm-hmm. it's like this thing of, of human meaning and kind of putting things into words and, and kind of creating yeah. structures of understanding the universe that are... Are useful from kind of the the abyss of, of nothingness, I guess, or, or the, yeah, the nonverbal, yeah. right? But but then it's like, yeah, basically, is does consciousness is consciousness required for existence? I guess could things exist without consciousness? I guess like I yeah. So because I, then that the one more thing because <laughs> then that goes into like because I think we talked about this before. And I think we kind of disagreed, but I'm curious like because I think recently I saw something about how plants they just figured out that plants actually make like, kind of like a screaming sound when you cut them and things like that. <laughs> so do you think plants are conscious too because I I was thinking okay I'm eating plants all the time it should be fine that's like they don't feel anything but maybe they do too because they're just <laughs> on a different substrata that we just can't only recently well, can figure out that they, they do feel something but I guess yeah, it's, yeah. It's, the, it's, the, it's the levels of difference the levels between us and plants are much greater obviously than, than, than the levels between us and animals well, you know but I mean fundamentally I'm inclined to say that there is no such thing as a plant like I want I want to say okay. that like okay <laughs> taking this deflationary okay. kind of approach to ontology like what is a plant like uh, you know you can kind of break it down into these like smaller and smaller components and then you ultimately just like come to these like you know these these physical fields um i i don't think plants are sentient beings i don't think that there's like a they have an experience that is sufficient to call them like a you know a subject um in the sense in which i would say that like you and i are subjects um and and have experiences and in that sense i think that like regardless of like how you know regardless of like how we interpret certain types of information about like uh you know what we're doing to plants i don't i I think you have to be a sentient being in order in order to experience pain or 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 suffer i would say that the fields of physics that make up plants you know like at the level of abstraction at which we're talking about these fields of physics and we call in um these these general kind of things that we perceive plants uh yeah i think that's made of consciousness but i just i don't think there's a subject i don't think that there's a to experience uh, the plant pain were there yeah. were there to be a thing there's, yeah there's no, yeah it's, there's not enough of a there's nothing that it's like to be a plant subjective yeah. uh locate like locus or something almost like yeah locus, uh, yeah and and also just relating to what you said before yeah. about that age-old question about you know if a tree falls in a forest uh doesn't make a sound i hate I, that by the way sorry for using that but no, no, no. it's just like the most simple way i could explain it's, it yeah. I, I think it's actually i think it's it's useful to bring up in this discussion because I do have an answer to this that I'm very confident in. Okay. It doesn't make a sound, okay? Um, and the the reason being is that if there's no, like, the way that I'm defining sound is, like, essentially 
uh, a modality, like a sensory modality, a particular pattern within uh, a moment of experience, a particular flavor or quality uh, of, of experience, right? And if there are no sentient beings within the environment that have a nervous system that is calibrated to represent the, the pressure wave that, that maybe that tree makes, uh, creates when it falls down, you know, like, essentially it doesn't, it doesn't create a, like, for it to create a sound, there has to be a, a being which essentially has a nervous system that is processing physical information and representing it uh, through like the sensory modality that we call sound, right? I'm not denying that there's like there's a difference, uh, you know, like there's there's no difference in in, in the physics of, of maybe like that forest. Um, there's no pressure wave that's created, but for there to be a sound, you need like a, a sentient being that actually has has a nervous system that can process pressure waves and represent them as what we'd call sound. And yeah, basically, like if there's no sentient being present, there's no sound. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe that um, sheds some sort of insight into kind of how how I'm approaching these questions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely unintuitive. Um, if that makes sense. Like, what do you think? But based on all this, basically, I wanted to ask you what you think then about yeah, this notion of then animism, right? Where it's like there is a sort of like notion of the spirit or the embodiment of, of consciousness within inanimate objects. So, like, as an artist, I, I do think about this a lot and how, you know, animism developed into anthropology, right? And how it's like, we, we kind of have this, as humans, I think, I mean, we're, we're losing it a bit in a way, but, like, we, we've mm. developed this sort of, um, again, it's maybe kind of just like a mental construct or whatever, or like a, another linguistic patterning of, of sort of how we're able to imbue more value and like life and consciousness into into literally inanimate objects in a sense and what do you mm-hmm. think about that in terms of consciousness i mean i guess well yeah, i again, guess you'd say the same thing that where it's <laughs> very kind of um pessimistically non-conscious i suppose well, in a sense or or yeah. is there something where you can kind of transfer some aspect of consciousness into a physical object through create creation of it or, or something like that i don't know yeah um, so linking to what i said before about like indirect realism like fundamentally, you know, we're only perceiving a model of the world and that includes each other. I can't actually directly access your experience. So you, mm-hmm. you step on a Lego block and you feel pain. Like, I, you know, I can, I can witness your behavior and I can make an inference. Oh, you're probably, you know, having a, a, a bad time. You know, you're probably feeling pain um, in your foot. But I can't actually access that experience. And this yeah. is because, as I said, like we're, we each have these little bubbles through which, like, we direct, uh, through which we indirectly uh, perceive the world, including each other. And I think, uh, relating maybe to what we were talking about at the beginning of, of, of our conversation, the, the way that we've evolved to represent the world is to represent things, like objects, uh, you know, uh, other sentient beings, as having these kinds of, like, intrinsic properties or essential qualities. And this goes back to, like, like really, you know, ancient Greek philosophy. This is like thousand year, uh, thousands of years old uh, in terms of like as a frame of like um, making sense of the world. Um, say like uh, you know, the, the, I guess like Plato, for example, has this this idea of there, there are kind of like these forms, these Platonic forms. There's the the perfect form of like what a what a chair is, and and every chair that we kind of encounter is is you know just maybe like a a representation of, of this form that has this kind of like intrinsic existence. I would kind of say that because we're never perceiving things as they are, because we're only perceiving things insofar as like our nervous systems have just evolved to represent, um, you know, different you know, like differences in information within the universe. Like it certainly seems that like, say, you know, I, I come up and I, I hug a tree and, and I feel its essence. I feel like it's life quality or like I, I, I see something that seems to have a particular vibe 
like it's impossible i guess like to to ever directly like know that that does have like an intrinsic being sure all all that all that says really is that like the way that like maybe maybe i have like a a positive association with like nature and and trees and whatnot and the way in which like my experience is 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 being changed when i'm encountering this thing that i perceive as a tree with its own with its own intrinsic qualities you know, it, it, it's positive. It's giving me a positive, meaningful yeah. experience, and I feel connection. But then in that sense, I mean, I guess going into, like, a broader broader topic, it's, like, how... Or, or what's what's the use of consciousness, I guess? Is there some grander thing where... Because human consciousness, is, is as we've spoken about, is so specific and kind of odd and, and vulgar and wonderful and complex in civilization, you know? I mean, like, yeah, yeah. is there... Do you think there is, like, an overarching plan... <laughs> does god have a plan for us you know what i mean or whatever yeah. you want to call it but like is there sort of like because if, if we're talking about it too on this level of like it, it's happening throughout like millennia of millennia 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 of, mm. of evolution and the human brain is this sort of like accumulation of physical consciousness from from the lizard and the and yeah or it's, time, it's, you know, it's like, a new representations of, of yeah like is it time. are we are we going towards some new structure of consciousness probably yeah so are there aliens no. <laughs> uh, yeah so okay so maybe just responding to what you said like at the beginning i'm definitely not a teleological philosopher and teleology refers to essentially thinking about things in terms of like being goal directed toward you know okay. things having an end um that they're tending toward uh i see the the universe is mechanistic i think that there are just like essentially there's there are just like physical processes that are bouncing against each other and performing uh you know like future states of the universe uh, are kind of predetermined by like you know whatever processes uh, are occurring at any given point i don't i think that the fact that like we have experiences is just like a contingent byproduct of the kind of ruthless drive toward uh, optimization of like natural evolutionary processes as i said before evolution only cares about or only acts upon um uh, i guess like yeah or like natural selection only acts upon the evolution of organisms based on whether or not a given trait is going to like correspond or you know with the an increase in uh, transmissibility of genetic information Mm. this is the only thing that evolution optimizes for at a certain point just like out of you know random kind of like well not really random but just at a certain point due to the the structural kind of conditions um within ecosystems say like around the time of the cambrian explosion i just think it became more adaptive to rather than just having these physical processes being instantiated without there being like this kind of closed segment of physics i think that it just became more adaptive to to create this little this local field and to have information being explicitly represented within it yeah um but yeah like i i fundamentally i don't think that like like evolution doesn't have an end goal it looks like it has an end goal but it's really just like you know the way that we describe it is tending toward um you know the promotion of fitness this is just like the way that we're looking at how this physical system behaves but actually it's just it's it's totally kind of yeah random and mechanistic (laughs) i think that that brings me into sort of you know we were talking about before a little bit you know space space ethics and so let's say human consciousness and and you know earth consciousness with animals also is sort of evolved from this physical from the physical specificity of being on Earth and evolving on Earth over millions of years, right? And so we've developed, yeah. developed this very specific time of consciousness. Yeah. And now, yeah. obviously, you know, the billionaire is going to space. We're going to space, <laughs> maybe. We're maybe going to be, you know, colonizing planets now, which is just great. But um, do you think that then, you know, 
Because obviously consciousness obviously adapts to the environment. So I think maybe if we become yeah. an interplanetary species, how do you think that would affect our consciousness? Or just generally, yeah, what is your take on, on space ethics? Then? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about it. So, like, I mean, for one, if, like, if humans are ever going to spread throughout space and create, and you know, like a, a civilization that spans maybe, like, a, you know, spread within our galaxy or, or other galaxies... There's, there's no way that we're going to look like we are, uh, like we do now, you know, like our entire, like the, the organization of, of, of our entire, like nervous system and biology is, is it obviously adapted toward like the atmospheric conditions on our planets? The way that we've evolved to reason is like, you know, determined by the, the conditions which were present, uh, you know, when we're undergoing like significant, I guess, evolutionary, uh, change, like, you know, it, it, the, the beings, the, the, if, say like humanity eventually results in there there being a spacefaring civilization or whatever it would be like post humans they'll look unrecognizable to to us um uh, i think just because it's it's also just like really difficult and inefficient to be able to like you know transport an animal like like a, you know a large mammal through space given that we have all of these requirements and and we've adapted for like very particular conditions they'll they'll probably look very different if, if they ever occur you know if we don't wipe ourselves out before we get to the point where we're able to do this um and generally in terms of like yeah uh, space ethics um so i think i mentioned yeah off the podcast i'm writing a paper at the moment um about the ethics of spreading life to other planets and i think this is just like this is really a really important issue especially in the context of effective altruism in the context of wanting to do the most good um and prevent like really bad outcomes uh it's it's really important that we actually uh maybe think about rather than like transiting humans or animals through space trans transiting microorganisms which it would be like trivially easy to do because like for one like we can already genetically modify microorganisms to be able to like survive on different planets or we could we could design um you know like capsules that uh, essentially shield them from from cosmic radi- radiation they don't, they can just be frozen they don't have all of the needs and you know the kind of uh, the, the nuances that would have to go into transporting like a, a human or another animal through space um so i think yeah we can already do it and if, if... What, would the, what would the utility of that be actually just to just to propagate a certain type of life on a different planet in a sense or a different yeah. kind of organism on so, a different planet or what do you think is the yeah utility of that? Or, and the, yeah and in, in the paper that i'm i'm writing i'm considering two reasons that have been put forward for, for why people want to do this mm. one of them is um essentially like like hedging against or protecting against the extinction of life on earth so eventually like in about a billion years the sun is gonna um, get so 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 big um it's gonna burn all the oxygen off our planet and then it might eventually engulf our planet so we know that like you know life on earth has an expiry date there are also other kind of existential or kind of like global catastrophic risks that are just very difficult to protect against so some of them are things like you know what are humans doing to the planet like climate change like ai risk I mean, these are very serious, you know, these, these might actually result in, in the extinction or like the, the destruction of, 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 of most human civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are also just like other kind of more latent risks that just come with like being in the universe, such as like big asteroid collision, sol- yeah. solar flares, you know, like all sorts of weird cosmic stuff. Um, and also just geological stuff that, that, you know, super volcanoes, for example, that could very easily just occur and just wipe maybe not only us, but wipe out all life on the planet. So, so this is one reason that's given is, is, you know, we, we spread life to other planets, then life survives in a sense, you know, we're not losing life, uh, if, if such an event unfolds. 
a second reason that's given is just that we should maximize how much life the, the universe contains and this is from like some philosophers who think that life is like intrinsically valuable i think that like the latter reason is just like really really problematic and i the purpose of the paper isn't to argue against this position but i can maybe go into detail about that but the former You're saying that the, the 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 idea that life is inherently valuable is problematic. Yeah, I I think this is. This but I guess is crazy. it goes back into <laughs> the, the notion of consciousness too, in a way of or yeah, again this stupid tree example. But but it's yeah. the thing of um, the because I, I believe I mean I don't know I, and I have absolutely no reason to believe this, but I do just feel like the universe out there is so endlessly vast or infinite, whatever. Yeah. That there must be some type of life out there somewhere. I have no no idea about the specifics. Maybe I'm wrong. And maybe there will never be another form of life the way it's been kind of, yeah. like, you know, curated so effectively on Earth. You know, we're very <laughs> lucky to be here. But, like, I think I just have this kind of instinct that there must be. It just seems too vast to, for it to not exist. But, again, I have, it's, it's, it is, I am the, the person not present yeah. in that forest with the tree falling. But that I just have this kind of pointless belief in that. I don't okay. know why, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, anyway. Um, I'm going to say something else, like, <laughs> relating to what I said before about being a... A deflationist about ontology. Mm. I, re- I I don't think life exists like fundamentally. I think I think <laughs> okay. life is an abstraction. We're dead right it's now, a then. very yeah no. It's a very yeah. low level abstraction. It's like yeah. a, a part of the model that we use to make yeah. sense and reason about the world. And when I say it's a very low level abstraction, I mean it's like it's essentially like you know like at a very basic level of analysis. You know you can kind of be like oh that's a living system. That's not a living system. You know if I'm like right. looking at like a watch or. Um, you know, a hammer or something like that, and then I'm looking at a cell or a plant, or a dead person and a living person, or a dead yeah. cell, a living cell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. It, it seems it seems like there's something that's like essential to life, and this is really possibly one of the oldest kind of like philosophical like kind of assumptions that yeah. that, that humans have hold, which is that is you there know, anything? Yeah, well, <laughs> basically, also. Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of like I think most historic philosophical kind of you know beliefs have kind of like really stemmed from this idea that there's this innate difference between life and 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 non-living systems you know um but actually like scientifically in 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 history of science there used to be this this idea that there was this elan vital this this fundamental kind of essence to life um that all and only living systems possess right and then and then fast forward maybe like uh uh, I don't know, like 150 years or something like that. And now we know that there is like no essential life-making property. So now, and this is like a hot topic in philosophy of biology, now when we say that a, a system is living, like a physical system is living, we can only really say that based on how that system behaves. It's like a functional classification of like, yeah, this this physical system behaves in such a way where it like maybe tends toward propagation or it exhibits these sorts of functional uh, kind of qualities and, and, and then we call it living on that basis. Um, I, I think this is like an arbitrary classification. I mean, I think it's really useful for being sentient beings that model the world, but you know, it's, there's nothing intrinsic to, to, to living systems outside of just us looking at physical systems and saying, Hey, that looks like it's living. So yeah, very quickly responding to, yeah. to what you said before, I think it's, it's definitely plausible that like at different point, parts of the universe, like there are, like essentially physical processes that have kind of like uh you know i guess via natural evolutionary processes um form created a lot of complexity in and and how they function yeah. and we would call those systems living but i don't think that that's like on an ontological level at the level of its intrinsic existence i don't think that's like a an objective classification okay. and so i think that people who think that there is something intrinsically valuable to life 
are possibly philosophically confused about like you know is is life instrumental or is it intrinsic mm. at the level of its uh, at the level of its, its existence objectively or independently from our preconceptions Velvet Theory.